Hanks isn't just good, he's transporting. He takes on Mr. Rogers' legendary mannerisms and owns them, using them as a conduit to Rogers' disarming inner spirit. That review from one of my favorite film critics, Owen Gladberman of Variety. That's one of the movies we're reviewing this week. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. We're also reviewing a couple other movies right now in theaters, Ford vs. Ferrari and Jojo Rabbit. So three releases out there right now. Thanks to the BFCA, the Broadcast Film Critics Association, who are sending me all these screeners. So... I'm up to date with all these latest movies. Uh, coming up in the weeks ahead, we're going to talk about movies that I just received in the mail yesterday. Just Mercy, uh, 1917 from Sam Mendes. That looks phenomenal. So I can't wait to watch all these movies. And as always, we appreciate all of you subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcast. Here's one from Doc Lou, Iowa. Please do a podcast reviewing The Irishman with detail now that it's on Netflix. Saw it yesterday, finished it this morning. Well, listen, I did a very, very in-depth podcast, so please do check it out in case you want to hear about my thoughts on The Irishman. Uh, Joe might be able to give the specific date here on the fly, but I believe it was the first weekend of October. Just go back to the Cinephile Rankings. You will see clearly Irishman Review. Trust me, I went in-depth in there, uh, and I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it yet, but I'm glad so many are now finally seeing it. I feel like the feedback has been very positive. What I see, obviously, the critics love it, 96%, raving about Scorsese's work. People seem to be raving about the performances from De Niro, Pesci, and Pacino. I know there's been some quibbling about the CGI. People don't like the scene where De Niro beats up the guy. Uh, that's definitely true. That was not great. I also would have cut the war scene. I don't think he looks like he's 20 years old there. But again, a bit of suspension of disbelief. Uh, more importantly, though, I think it's the best picture of the year, and it's going to be a huge awards favorite. Speaking of that, Chris Beecham, my buddy from GoldDerby.com, he's going to join us next week. He's great. Golden Globe nominations coming out next week. So Chris is going to break down for us which movies are going to be positioned to be big-time award favorites for picture, director, etc. The latest on Gold Derby right now, Irishman is the favorite to win Best Picture. Scorsese is the favorite to win Best Director. Uh, De Niro is going to get nominated for Lead, Pesci and Pacino uh, for Supporting. Right now, Brad Pitt, the slight favorite to win for supporting for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood just ahead of Pacino and De Niro right now lagging behind Joaquin Phoenix for best actor but Joe I know you finally saw The Irishman so I want to get your thoughts before we move on what'd you think I thought it was great you're right it's slower it's uh, more reflective I thought the build-up was great I thought the writing was fantastic and some of it was filmed in my neighborhood I realized while watching it so that was fun too nice surprise yeah it was really really good uh, which performance stood out to you? I, I, I see a lot of people here raving about Pesci. I, of course, adored Pacino's work. I think De Niro, by the way, if De Niro gets nominated for Best Actor, I looked this up, he hasn't been nominated for Lead Actor since 91, Cape Fear. So talk about a long time coming. He was nominated for Supporting Actor for Silver Linings Playbook. But if he's up for Best Actor, that'd be his eighth nomination and first since Cape Fear. What about the acting? Even the supporting cast, if you want to talk about Ray Romano or Bobby Cannavale? Oh, uh, I would go with Pesci. 100%. He just commanded the screen, I thought. I thought he was a great compliment to Pesci and De Niro's characters. Um, so, yeah, I would go with Pesci. What about you? Yeah, I, I think to me, you know, especially that first hour, as I said, takes a little kind of used to and getting acclimated to the story. But I thought as soon as Pacino shows up, he's just a jolt of energy to the entire story. Like he's just, and his performance is big and boisterous. And sometimes he gets criticized for over-the-top acting. But Hoffa himself was an over-the-top persona and that's who he was like as a rabble rouser and he really I thought portrayed you know Hoffa's passion for the union and why it was so important to him even if some of it was you know attained by help of wise guys 
Uh, so I thought just his, uh, his volcanic presence just really lifted up the entire film. I do think Pesci's wonderful, though, because you've never seen him like that in a Scorsese movie, which is why he was so reluctant to do it. He kept telling Marty, why are we going to do this? We already did this before, Goodfellas and Casino. But once he saw the script by Steve Zillian and how different it was, that definitely changed things for him as well. And, and I think De Niro's wonderful. I mean, especially the final 30 minutes. Uh, De Niro with his, uh, he does so much with so little and his mortality. It's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of work. One bit of entertainment news before we get to these movies that I want to review, because it's about the Irishman, and that's the fact that there's one criticism right now. The most prominent female character in the movie portrayed by Oscar-winning actress Anna Paquin speaks just six words in 10 minutes of screen time. As a result, some have questioned why a talented actress would be so underutilized. De Niro defended Scorsese and screenwriter Steven Zalian's choice to minimize her words. De Niro telling USA Today... She was very powerful, and that's what it was. Maybe in other scenes, there could have been some interaction between Frank and her, possibly, but that's how it was done. She's terrific, and it resonates. Paquin herself defended the role as well earlier this month, agreeing with a user who scoffed at the idea that Scorsese ordered Paquin to appear in the film. Nope, nobody was doing any ordering. I auditioned for the privilege of joining the incredible cast of The Irishman, and I'm incredibly proud to be a part of this film. Listen, the life of this world does not have any room for women, okay? I listen, a lot of Scorsese movies have had wonderful parts for women. Jodie Foster and Taxi Driver, Lorraine Bracco and Goodfellas, Sharon Stone in Casino, Ellen Burstyn won an Oscar for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Um, you know, there's plenty of roles to which to choose from. But in this case, I mean, this is all about the guys in this world and Frank Sheeran's world just didn't involve women, which is obviously an indictment of his life and why he's so depressed at the end. But anyways... That's just one thought there in The Irishman. Let's get to some movies here. I'm going to start with Ford versus Ferrari because I feel like most people have seen this one. It was a big hit at the box office, opened at number one, opened at number three there for its second week, although now it's facing a lot of competition there from Frozen 2 and Knives Out. But it's the story about American automotive designer Carol Shelby, played by Matt Damon, and fearless British race car driver Ken Miles, battling corporate interference, the laws of physics, and their own personal demons to build a revolutionary vehicle for the Ford Motor Company. Together, they plan to compete against the race cars of Enzo Ferrari, the 24 Hours of Le Mans in France in 1966. I'm not a big uh, car guy per se, not a, not a, not a gearhead, uh, but I can appreciate the story and the fact that first and foremost is directed by James Mangold, who I think is one of our best directors, loved his work with Copland, Walk the Line, and Logan, and clearly he's a very smart filmmaker, and he knows how to make what I think is in many ways a classical piece of filmmaking. This is you know, really much a studio film, which is uh, featuring very likable leads and Matt Damon and, and Bale. Damon plays the quiet Texan, doesn't have a lot to do in the role, but I think he was uh, serviceable. Christian Bale has a little more of a showier part, and I think he's excellent. He lost 70 pounds because he was really overweight, obviously, to play Dick Cheney and Vice. So he went from 70 pounds to play Ken Miles, who is gaunt and has that angular face, has a little bit of a haughty arrogance about him. You actually hear Bale in his British voice again, so that's a little bit jarring. This is how he actually sounds. Um, but he's very good in the movie. You know, specifically, Kenneth Turan of the LA Times said Bale... Uh, his Ken Miles with the angular look and piercing stare of a bird of prey is yet another landmark in the actor's ability to lose himself beyond our recognition in challenging roles. One thought here on Mangold, by the way, as Turan points out, if you look closely at the final credits, you'll see the name of the late Alexander McKendrick, one of the great figures of movie making, the director of such rich emotional films as The Man in the White Suit, The Lady Killers, and Sweet Smell of Success, which is a great one. Burt Lancaster. Oh, I love the smell of arsenic. Uh, McKendrick was Mangold's teacher and mentor at Cal Arts. With Ford versus Ferrari, Mangold has surely made a film that would make the old man proud. So 
it's a good movie, but I did not think it was a great film because it just felt so formulaic, which is the problem with most sports films themselves, right? Damon's character, Carol Shelby, is a former driver who now, due to injury, can't race again. So he becomes the owner here, so to speak, or the one who's uh, designing the car, then bails Ken Miles. He's the daredevil that wants to get it done. And Ford Motor Company, played by Tracy Letts, playing Henry Ford II, he's excellent. Very uh, unexpected crying scene involving Tracy Letts, who's a big Neil Everett favorite. But Letts says, listen, we got to get Ford to sell more cars. What's going to make the cars more sexy? And John Bernthal, who plays a terrific Lee Iacocca, very aggressive and uh, highly motivated, he says, listen, we got to make the car more sexier, more exciting. And that's why they get this idea to have the car race against Ferrari in the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Um, so it's really not the, the, the title, first of all, is misleading. It's not really Ford versus Ferrari. There's not a whole lot of Ferrari in the movie. Enzo Ferrari played by Remo Giron. It's more about the corporate interference that I mentioned, specifically Josh Lucas's character. And he's a decent actor, but I just thought his character was very underwritten and poorly conceived playing Leo Beebe. It was just a little bit too phony as if he's, you know, the face of corporate interference. And the, the level to which he undermines Ken Miles and Carol Shelby, I just thought was a little bit ridiculous, to be honest with you. And it took away from the film for me. Of course, you're seeing this movie for one reason. That's to watch the, the driving scenes. But I'll say this. As good a director as Mangold is, it's almost a little bit too classical in the way he films the scenes. Meaning, my favorite shot in a driving movie is, of course, the POV of the driver. You know, it's a video game shot. You go to the video game, you know, race car game is always my favorite. So he does that for like three seconds. Then he cuts to a, a close-up of Bale. Then he'll cut to an insert of him moving the gears. Then he'll cut to a wide shot, the car zooming by. Then he cuts back to the POV. So it's very studied the way he's doing it. I was like, just give me 15 seconds of the POV, just once. It's one of the best ways that Mad Max Fury Road was so incredible. Why it's one of the great action movies of our time is what George Miller would do is he would speed up the frames. It would be like times two, times three, just flying at you. And then he'd go into slow motion. So you got these crazy close-ups, you know, the camera just flying in on the drivers. You know, whether it's Tom Hardy or Shalise Theron. And then all of a sudden it goes this beautiful slow motion. You get this balletic effect of really fast, really slow. With Mangle, it's always at the same speed, you know, in terms of his directorial insight. And, you know, these cars are driving 200 miles an hour, but you never really feel the fear of it because it's so steady the way he does it. So I just wish that he'd kind of taken some more chances with it. To that point, uh, the Globe and Mail film critic offered this. The characters are stock, the story's ups and downs, easily telegraphed, and the inoffensive but not particularly inventive dialogue is spat up as if the actors were eager to move on to the next thing. Watching it feels like steadily and carefully drinking a glass of room temperature water for two and a half hours. It goes down smooth and you'll leave the theater feeling full, but you'll be left with a hunger for something with a hint of flavor, and hours later you'll struggle mightily to remember just what it was that you gulped down in the first place. I'm giving Ford versus Ferrari two and a half Maple Leafs, it's a good sports movie, but I do think for a movie about cars and guys going against the edge, it does play it safe. The next one we're going to talk about is A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. To go back to Owen Glaverman's review, Hanks nails Fred Rogers' so delicate, it's peculiar speaking style, the folksy sing-song that can almost be a drawl, the way the words come out slowly enough to make him sound like a benevolent hypnotist. He really is the best part of the film. There's a reason why Tom Hanks is viewed as, you know, one of the great actors of our time and certainly one of the more lovable guys. He is the key of the movie, but it's not a straight-ahead Mr. Rogers biopic. The two-time Oscar winner portrays Mr. Rogers, but it's a timely story of kindness triumphing over cynicism based on the true story of a real-life friendship between Fred Rogers and journalist Tom Genod. After a jaded magazine writer, Emmy winner Matthew Reese, is assigned a profile of Fred Rogers, he overcomes his skepticism, learning about empathy, kindness, and decency from America's most beloved neighbors. So I wasn't crazy about that storyline, although it's different. I'd rather have seen 
a Mr. Rogers biopic and find out what makes this guy tick. What was his beginnings like? His child, his own childhood. What's it like for Mr. Rogers when he was a kid? That's what I would love to know. Um, they, they hinted the fact Mr. Rogers had some strained relationships with his own sons. I'd love to know more about that if the focus was on that. But instead, Mariel Heller, who's the director, really good director of Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is a really good movie from last year. They take this tack of using another character who offers a window into the soul of Mr. Rogers. So it's not my favorite conceit. Um, it's like telling the story of, uh, you know, black oppression and slavery and racism by using Willem Dafoe and Gene Hackman in Mississippi Burning. It's like telling the story of the Holocaust and about the Jews by telling the story through Oscar Schindler, the German uh, guy who was, you know, exploiting them and eventually has a second change of heart. So I like it better when the story are told from the characters, right? 12 Years a Slave. He is the main character. In this case, you're using another guy as an entry point to that character. So it's not my ideal method. Having said that, Hanks is fantastic because he's not doing an imitation. In fact, his voice doesn't even sound like Mr. Rogers, but he nails the cadence of his voice. And um, the fact that he was always searching for empathy and the essential goodness and kindness of this guy. You know, that very slow, deliberate delivery, but it felt like Mr. Rogers was always unhurried in his pace, whether it was speaking or looking at you, he would affect you with that gaze. And that he was so sincere and genuine. And one of the most interesting parts of the movie is when his wife, the Marianne Plunkett, is telling the writer, Lloyd Vogel, that, you know, he's not perfect. He has a temper, but he deals with it by swimming every day. He plays the piano. You know, he finds outlets for his uh, anger. And you think, oh, my God, I can't imagine Mr. Rogers ever being angry. But, you know, he's human like all of us. But he really believes, you know, he was a devout Christian. He believed that a big part of Scripture was to be good to people, to help others. And the opening is great. You know, they actually do the whole opening to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Tom Hanks, I just saw him on one of the talk shows, said it took 27 takes, he told Jimmy Kimmel. Unbelievable. Because he said one of the tricks was that Mr. Rogers' shoes were a little bit bigger than his feet, so it was very easy to slip off. So for Hanks, he goes, you know, you got to walk in, hang up the jacket, put the red cardigan on, go down, put it, you know, take off the dress shoes, put on the running shoes, tie those up. He goes, 27 takes. That's why I could just never be an actor. I just don't understand. I think was, I have that kind of patience to do it. Um, Reese is fine in the lead role. You know, he's playing one of these writers again. You can see it coming a mile away. He does not want to interview Mr. Rogers. He doesn't care about this guy. He thinks he's boring. Christine Lottie, always a welcome presence. She tells him to do a story about Mr. Rogers, 400 words, and that's it. And he's used to more provocative stories, more cynical stuff that he can really dig his teeth into. So when he meets Mr. Rogers, he's like, why am I talking to this guy? And he doesn't like the fact that Mr. Rogers is kind of turning the tables on him. He can quickly find out the fact that Lloyd uh, has a real issue with his father and his team, which I really found tough to believe. He actually punches his dad at a wedding. Uh, the dad is played by the always terrific Academy Award winner, Chris Cooper. And so the really the heart of this movie is about the estranged relationship between father and son. And that has a predictable ending. But Hanks's performance and his role in trying to get these two to assimilate themselves uh, is really wonderful acting. I think he's going to get nominated for Best Supporting Actor, might even win. He hasn't been nominated in a long time either. And um, I really thought it was a wonderful performance. And it is true. You think of Hollywood's nicest actor, you know, wholesome and kindness would, would come very easily. But I think it's uh, deceptive what he's able to do with the story. In some ways, it's a lot easier to be a tough guy beating people up or being a really rage-filled character. In some ways, it's harder to just portray essential goodness, like what Ben Kingsley was in Schindler's List. It's very hard to play that, but Hanks is, uh, is wonderful at doing it. There is a real nod to the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Uh, the ending of that documentary was perfect, where they, you know, the, the narrator says, okay, Think for a minute about someone who's been very close to you, who's impacted your life, what they've done for you. It's great. They replicated the movie. I didn't think it was nearly as successful in the movies as it was in the documentary, but I think both are, are successful, relatively speaking. 
I'll give a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Three Maple Leafs overall, um, like I said, primarily for Hanks' performance and the fact they're trying something different here. Like I said, you're trying to tell a story of sweetness with all that's going on in the world right now. I, I thought the production design was very good, uh, showing the Mr. Rogers behind-the-scenes neighborhood as well. I just would have liked more about the person himself. Before we get into JoJo Rabbit, Joe, have you seen either of Ford versus Ferrari or a beautiful day in the neighborhood? Or any thoughts here while I take a breath? I have not seen Ford versus Ferrari, but I was curious about A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And you kind of answered my question with Tom Hanks and whether he, you think he would get a nomination or not. But it seems like this is kind of in the same vein as your review for Judy, where you know it's performance-based, go see it for this actor, but the rest of the movie isn't all the way there. Is that a fair assessment? I think absolutely. He's the best reason to watch the movie. And again, you go to the movies, why for movie stars more than anything? And yeah, I would agree with that. Much like for Judy, you're watching it for Renee Zellweger for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. You're watching it for Tom Hanks. And I do think uh, he should get nominated. And he hasn't been nominated in a while. Remember, he got snubbed for Captain Phillips, which is a great performance. I, I was shocked he didn't get nominated. So it's actually been a long time coming there for Hanks, who is a two-time Academy Award winner. Last movie to discuss before we get to some more entertainment news. That is Jojo Rabbit, which is a movie that won the Audience Award at the Toronto Film Festival. That's a real bellwether for the Oscars. If you win the Audience Award, which is the equivalent of Best Picture at TIFF in Toronto, that pretty much means you're getting a Best Picture nomination and you have a good chance of winning the Best Picture Oscar. Look at Green Book a season ago. That won the Audience Award at TIFF and also a film like... Um, uh, the King's Speech, that also won the Audience Award and then won Best Picture. So Jojo Rabbit, pretty good chance here to get nominated for Best Picture. What's it all about? A lonely German boy who discovers that a single mother is hiding a Jewish girl in their attic, aided only by his imaginary friend Adolf Hitler. That's right. Jojo must confront his blind nationalism as World War II continues to rage on. It's a really creative and inventive story, a sweet coming-of-age story. Uh, it stars Roman Griffin Davis here as Jojo. And, you know, you watch him, you go, he's a really sweet boy, very precocious. He has one issue. He's a Nazi. He, he wants to be a Nazi. He is blindly loyal to this. And this follows in the tradition of, um, you know, Mel Brooks, clearly uh, poking fun at the Third Reich with Springtime for Hitler uh, in The Producers. You look at, obviously, Roberto Benigni, a wonderful film, Life is Beautiful, which I love, which won the best foreign film. But even that film, you know, when you watch it, I think it's powerful, but you could see critics of it saying that it's too sentimental, a little bit too sweet. And I could see that criticism of Jojo Rabbit as well. At times, it kind of meanders a little bit too close to sentimentality. But overall, I liked it a lot. I thought Taika Waititi really did an excellent job. Uh, he's the co-writer, so I think he's got a good chance of definitely getting nominated because the script itself is so creative and inventive. Uh, also directed it and he plays Adolf Hitler. He, he plays him for laughs, obviously. He's a very kind of a broad impression of Hitler, who at times does have a dark side. Um, but I thought the kid performance is really good. Not only Roman Griffin Davis, but also Thomas McKenzie. She plays Elsa, uh, the Jew who's hiding. And I think Scarlett Johansson uh, is really good as well. She's Rosie, who is JoJo's mom. And I think she's a good chance. She's going to get nominated for Best Actress for Marriage Story. That's an absolute lock. She might actually win. But I think she could also get nominated for Supporting Actress. Very rare that happens. Pacino in 92 got nominated for Best Actor for Scent of a Woman and also got nominated for Supporting Actor for Glengarry Glenn Ross. But ScarJo is really good in the movie. She's very sweet. She is not in tune with her son's Nazism. She has uh, some other thoughts when it comes to politics, but she loves her son so much. She's obviously there from a very doting on him as well. And I really love Sam Rockwell. He uh, is a previous Academy Award winner uh, for Three Billboards. That's at Ebbing, Missouri. He plays Captain Klensendorf. He's a Nazi who also is not what you expect. Stephen Merchant shows up. He's really funny as Deertz. He always has that oddball look in his face. If you know Ricky Gervais's work, you know him. So I would recommend Jojo Rabbit. I'm going to give it three Maple Leafs. 
Again, it's very odd when you tell somebody, hang on, sorry. It's a story about a kid whose friend is Adolf Hitler, but I think it was sweet. It's funny. It's affecting. And it does have some uh, surprising dramatic moments as well. Peter Travis of Rolling Stone said, Watiti's faith in the notion that a child will lead us out of ignorance may be naive, but it's also deeply affecting. So of the three movies that I'm recommending this time, that's the one I enjoyed the most. um, And I really think it's good. I think it's going to do well with the Oscars. Joe, any thoughts on Jojo Rabbit? Uh, I've been wanting to see this movie for a while, but, you know, looking over the cast list, how is Sam Rockwell in everything? It seems like he's just been everywhere this year. Am I making that up? But it, no, he's it, 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 this, definitely a prolific actor. Right. And this time last year, he was in Vice, but uh, that'd be interesting to see if Scarlett Johansson gets two nominations at this year's Oscars. So I think that's something to look out for. Yeah, the latest on Gold Derby, they have her at seventh. And of course, five people get nominated for supporting actress. But you never know. Maybe she gets a little bit of a push and gets in there. Uh, one bit of entertainment news before we get to our special guest, the director of a new documentary called One Night. Pete Davidson fans said they have to sign a $1 million NDA. That's a long disclosure agreement for a comedy show. This according to EW.com. That's right. Fans of the SNL star Davidson have a lengthy document to sign before catching one of his comedy shows. One such fan posted a non-disclosure agreement, she says, was sent to her via email before a recent San Francisco appearance. Apparently, the, the NDA says that fans agree they cannot give any interviews, opinions, or critiques about the performance in any form whatsoever to blogs or on social media. The document also gives Team Davidson the right to confiscate, including seize and destroy the contents of any cell phones, cameras, or PDAs. Should anyone who agreed to the terms set in the document decide to breach the agreement, they will be required to pay $1 million in damages as well as the legal costs. Fans who attended the Bay Area performance have said the show was being taped for the star's Netflix comedy special, making the NDA standard protocol. Various audience members attending other shows in November are claiming they also to sign a similar contract. Interesting move right now by Davidson and company. There's so many issues uh, as far as material being leaked or disseminated in whatever way possible. So I don't know about a $1 million non-disclosure agreement, but I like the fact he's taking a stand here, Joe, against having his work being pirated. Yeah, I'm actually all for this. I, I used to do stand-up for years. I mean, I'm not funny, but I have a lot of friends who are funny and who do it professionally. And I feel like when stand-ups hit a certain point and they're trying to work on material, if you're Chris Rock, if someone's just going to upload your half-baked material online, you can't use that for your special. So people have been trying to fight it for years. They've literally put phones in bags, but... This, I think, will actually be an effective way to keep fans from uploading people's original content. I can already feel it right now. People want Joe to do stand-up. So go ahead and tweet us, CinephilePod or Adnan S. Furk. And if you if we get enough replies so they want Joe to do some stand-up on the next edition of Cinephile, Joe will give us some of his best stand-up material. Are you willing to do that, Joe? I am willing to do that. Everyone, <laughs> please tweet. I got, I got some stuff that I need to get off my chest. <laughs> a couple of the reviews I want to read in Apple Podcast. Larry Shoemaker, who says, Age of Innocence and your Rushmore of movies based on novels. A-Y-F-K-M. Are you effing kidding me? You got to take off the Scorsese goggles. Glad that Joe bailed you out, included Mockingbird, which is a no-brainer because the movie and book are both classics. This was about the best uh, movie adaptations of books. How about Jaws? Shawshank Redemption, based on a novella, but so is Apocalypse Now. To have and have not. Great one. Bogey and Bacall. I'll give you props there, Larry. Life of Pi. No, I did not think Life of Pi was a very good movie. And he went with Age of Innocence. Come on, man. I stand by it. Age of Innocence is a great, great film. Cuff Doc as well. This is either my buddy Dallin Cuff or his brother Derek. The Cuffs are unbelievable. Uh, the review, love the pod. The detailed reviews Adnan provides while eliminating spoilers. Finish the Irishman on Netflix. Scorsese's amazing attention to detail in every sequence of the film is intoxicating. Well done, Cuff. 
Pesci's understated performance was perfect and stole the movie for me. An Oscar nod for him is best supporting is a must, and a second gold statue to culminate his career is well-deserved. It's an excellent review. Very well written there, either Derek or Dallin. Pesci is wonderful, man. Listen, if he wins another Oscar, it'd be awesome. I just don't like the fact that Pacino only has one Oscar, which is insane, because I think of the, of the two actors, I think Pacino's the better actor than Joe Pesci. But Pesci hasn't acted in a decade. He is brilliant in the movie. If he wins another Oscar, of course, he won for supporting for Goodfellas. Listen, as long as the Irishman wins, I'd be happy with that. Uh, we're going to do later on Mount Rushmore of Movies with Imaginary Friends in honor of Jojo Rabbit. But now it's time for our special guest. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. A real pleasure to welcome in Deirdre Fenton, Director of Original Programming at DAZN, as our special guest this week at Set of Files. Some background on Deirdre, the Director of Original Programming for DAZN, making her one of the chief creative masterminds behind the global sports streaming platform, sports documentary business, including new docuseries, 40 Days. Prior to DAZN, Deirdre was a highly acclaimed producer for ESPN's 30 for 30, where she won three sports Emmys, a Peabody, a Producers Guild Award, a BAFTA, and a Television Academy honor for her work. She was also producer on the Academy Award-winning OJ Made in America, attended Hamilton College, now lives in Jersey with her family. And of course, she's a teammate of mine at DAZN, which is the most important thing to me. Deirdre, thanks so much for the time today. Well, thank you so much for that intro. That was that. That, that felt nice. Thank you. <laughs> Credit my producer Joe. He was like, "Hey, she's quite acclaimed. Like, no <laughs> question you. about it." Thank you, Joe. I'm going to take him home with me for the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> he's small, so you're right. He's compact. You, you can find a way to fit him in. <laughs> Uh, One Night is Terrific. For those who are unaware, it is a documentary which you co-directed along with our friend Jamie Horowitz. It's available on DAZN, D-A-Z-N. It's also available on YouTube. But of course, Jamie told me to tell everybody just to go to DAZN. So subscribe to DAZN. And of course, you can watch the fight this weekend, which is the rematch between Anthony Joshua and Andy Ruiz. I'll be there in Saudi Arabia along with the rest of our outstanding crew. I'm flying out tomorrow. But the documentary is great, Deirdre, because it's a refresher course at what happened on June 1st. For those who are unaware, take us through the drama of this fight and why it was so impactful and why uh, you and Jamie made such a stirring documentary about it. Well, I think just the the place to start is, you know, just how we came to do this, which is when when we have big tentpole events like the rematch of AJ Ruiz, we look look to do, we we look at original content in terms of what can, what can we do to support it that's compelling? When you talk about the rematch, the most compelling thing is the first fight. You know, the biggest upset since, since Buster Douglas and Tyson. You know, Stallone says in his mind it's the biggest upset ever. So we thought let's just relive that night from the people who were there, former heavyweights, and just, you know, one of the nice things about doing a doc that's only happened six months ago, you can, you know, you have all the camera angles, you have the corner talk, you have all the different broadcasts. It was a lot of fun to bring all those elements together uh, to, to do this. 
Yeah, and what's so great about it is you're telling the story without the principles. I just watched this great documentary from Tara Wood called QT8, The First Date, and it's about Tarantino's first eight movies, and yet she doesn't interview Quentin. So she's got you know Samuel L. Jackson and, and all of his collaborators throughout the years uh, talking about it. So it's interesting. It's great with watching One Night because I don't want to hear from Joshua Ruiz. I've seen those guys plenty. You've got experts like Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield, and most memorably Sylvester Stallone, who is tremendous, talking about how Ruiz ended up being a real-life rock or Mexican Rocky. Tell me about working with Sly. Well, I think, uh, you know, we weren't really sure what his level of involvement was going to be when we first engaged him. But, oh, man, he jumped in with both feet. In terms of helping us book, some of the guys you mentioned, he helped us book Tyson, Holyfield, Strahan, Dolph, and then in terms of creative notes. And um, it's a little intimidating when, you, you know, when you're editing a boxing story and you have the creator of Rocky giving you notes. It's amazing and intimidating kind of all at once. So he was really a huge creative force in this, and we're really thankful you know, he, he was able to jump on. Yeah, and a genuine boxing fan, Deirdre. Like, it wasn't like he was just talking about Ruiz in broad strokes. He was talking about specifics and moments in the fight, and I really thought he was clearly detailed. I don't know if he'd watched the fight prior to the interview or he remembered it that well from June 1st, but this isn't one of those. We know that there's some of those athletes who say, oh, I'm a big, uh, you know, St. Louis Cardinals fan or Yankees fan. They haven't watched the team play in years. Clearly, Sly's a fight fan and really was well-versed in that fight and the verbiage of fight language. It's amazing. He is completely a boxing fan. He watches everything on his own. Uh, you know, you can ask Jamie. I believe he texts Jamie some live feedback during broadcast. It's amazing. <laughs> he's completely immersed in this. He's immersed in this world, and he really, um, he's, he's just, you know, he, he's just a diehard fan. And, and I think that's, like, that's the amazing thing about sports is, you know, you can be anyone and still just so invested in, in these athletes. Well, I loved him in Copland, so I'll have Jamie pass along that text. Him. Very underrated, great Sylvester <laughs> Stallone movie. Um, and to, you know, it's funny. I was talking to Jamie last week at his own offices, and he said, "You know, you you and I both know this as well as anybody." He said, "You know, every movie is, you know, boy wants girl, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back." And he said, particularly for one night, you know, Ruiz boy gets girl is the third round when AJ goes down. Mm-hmm. Boy loses girl is rounds four, five, and six. Yeah. He goes out. Maybe sometimes in movies that's that's the boring part because you say, oh man, the, the character, the hero's down. But then boy gets girl is of course at the end. I thought that was an interesting framework. I don't know if you and him discussed that, but you know, for a thirty-five minute documentary, it's awfully tight and taut. But I think you're able to tell yeah. that storyline of Ruiz's narrative in a very compelling manner. You know, I think the thing about it is, um, you know, you look back and with the benefit of hindsight, you see how much that third round punch really affected AJ and how um, the night really turned for him there. But I think when, you know, when, when we went back and we looked at the footage and we were hearing all the calls and even looking at the judges' cards, no one thought it was over. You know, people thought AJ was a little hurt after that third round, but he was getting his legs back and he, and he was going to be fine and everything was still going according to plan. So I, I think just, um, you know, th- there was definitely a balance between showing how impactful that third round punch was, but also balancing with, like, people still thought AJ was going to win. And I, I think um, up until Ruiz really pulled it out in the seventh, I, I still think people w- were, were underestimating him. No question about it. And that's why this weekend's going to be so exciting. Make sure you watch the AJ Ruiz rematch. It's going to be on DAZN with a time difference. You know, it'll be 11 o'clock or 11 p.m. local time, but I think it'll be about 3 p.m. Uh, Saturday afternoon. So it should be a great fight. And certainly your documentary does a compelling matter. I told Jamie, even specifics in terms of directing, I love that shot. Uh, you know, where he takes a deep breath. I think it's AJ. And then Tyson mm. does that deep breath as well. I, I thought it was great the way you guys matched him with the interview subjects were saying yeah. about actual events that happened. 
Yeah, it, it was, um, you know, and I think like it was really nice because we to be able to watch it, and then we interviewed Tyson. We actually only interviewed Tyson about three weeks before the film was done. So by then, and you know, by then we'd been editing for two months. You know everything so well, and so we were able to go in there with Tyson and really kind of relive that stuff and ask him exactly about these moments. And he was so good on these specific moments. He's so good uh, reacting to what's going on in the fight. You know, he has that memorable line about AJ getting punched in in the head where he says, you know, his legs are working, but his head isn't there. And um, I think that was one of the benefits of having guys like Tyson, Holyfield, Buster, is like they, they get it. And they're giving, you know, you have uh, obviously our broadcasters, but they're giving you this like this real reaction from people who have been there. And uh, I, think, I think that was a really unique perspective to bring. Yeah, and boxing is just so cinematic. Obviously, some of the best movies ever made, whether it's Raging Bull or others along that ilk are often boxing movies for good reason. I want to ask you, of course, about the OJ doc. I mean, phenomenal work you did with Connor. So every time I would see Connor, you know, rare meetings I have, and I just want to talk movies, which is probably my fault. I should have been, you know, <laughs> just self-promoting myself, how I could change ESPN's program. And I think, hey, listen, have you seen The Godfather 2 lately? Let me tell you about it, Connor. But um the, the OJ, it was amazing. Honestly, Deirdre, it was such a fascinating story and just the rise and fall of it. Uh, any stories you can tell from the filming, the, the development of it, it was such a landmark, obviously, not only for you and Connor, but for ESPN to win yeah. uh, an Oscar for that. And it really is, uh, I don't want to say a classic American story because I don't think OJ is that classic American hero, but it was <laughs> rich with American details, uh, greed, celebrity, rise, fall, etc. You know, one of the things and um, that was really challenging about OJ was was doing something that so much has been done on before. Um, you know, taking taking something on and convincing people, no, this is going to be a different way. You know, Ezra, you know, Ezra talks about when when they reached out to Marsha Clark and she says, you know, I'm not talking about this again. I say the same thing, and it's that you know that convincing, like, no, no, I know you've talked about it this way, but it's going to be different because we're going to go this long and we're going to tell the whole story. So I think just like that initial development of, of convincing people that this time was going to be different and we were going to do it a different way, um, it, it was, was really the difference maker in, in that. Because when you kind of pull back and, you know, we got a lot of criticism for going seven and a half hours, but I think when, when you have that time and you're able to tell the full story from, you know, from the beginning of, of the migration into LA to 1995, you, you understand how, how it all happened. It really sheds a new light on it. Yeah, that was the strongest part of the documentary. I completely agree with you, is the way you guys were able to bring context and just what yeah. was LA like? You know, how important was race at that time? What were previous events that led to this? Because without, because too often people look at it and go, how could you bungle the case? And yet when I watch it, I'm so sympathetic to Marcia Clark. She's battling sexism yeah. and ageism. And Christopher Darden is dealing with issues within the black community that how come you're a prosecutor? You should be protecting one of our own, whatever the hell that means. And, 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 and looming above it all is Cochran, who I just, I watch with such admiration and repulsion. Yeah. I think he's He's a fascinating character. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that's great that I love about DAZN is just the, the flexibility to do, to, to, to find the right length for whatever, for whatever we're doing. For example, this is 38 minutes, and I felt that was the perfect time for it. It's tight, and uh, it's, I, I think it, it, you know, I think it's a kind of perfectly edited 38 minutes that will look back at the fight and get you amped for, for Saturday. Something like OJ, there's been... 100 two-hour docs on OJ and still people didn't understand it. When you go to seven, when you have the ability to go to seven and a half hours, um, you know, you, you really widen the lens a little bit. But that was a fight at, at, at ESPN and something like, you know, at a place like DAZN, you know, we're, we're lucky that we have that ability. 
Last one for you. What do you think of the Irishman? It's obviously the best picture of the year. I know. I'm sure you're going to agree with me here. Scorsese deserves his second Oscar. De Niro, Pesci, Pacino will all be nominated. It's brilliant upon brilliant, right? I loved it. I thought Pesci especially was brilliant. He he was the standout for me. I thought he was his. Uh, I thought he, his subtlety was amazing. A way you've never seen him before, right? In a Scorsese film, you used to, and that's why he took such coaxing. He said, "I don't want to do what I'd done before." And then Marty explained to him, "No, no, this is elegiac. This is mournful. This is gangsters looking back at their life." And that scene with De Niro, not to spoil it for anybody, but where they're having breakfast, how good is the subtlety with both those guys the way they're playing that back and forth, not explicitly stating what has to happen, yet both understanding it? I thought it was fantastic. I, they they were really great. Can I, I can, can I give it one criticism, or are you going to hang up on me? Uh, I'll give you one. I think everyone keeps hammering the same point, which is the, the de-aging of when De Niro kicks the shop owner. But go ahead. Oh, I thought it got a little long at the end. Yeah, it's interesting. Oh, Scorsese himself said that. Yeah, no, I was about to say, Scorsese said every major studio, there's no way I could have done that. Netflix was the only one. Ted Sarandos says, like, whatever yeah. you want, Marty. Go ahead. You, know, you want to make it eight hours? I don't care. He said, I really wanted to show aging and his mortality and i didn't want to cheapen mm. it he goes you normally in most movies you get the the climax and then the denouement is about five ten minutes he goes i really wanted to show how sad this guy's life is and really de-glamorize the mafia so i'm with it maybe you yeah. don't need him stumbling around like a cripple but i i think it really hammered home marty's point and in many ways yeah. is why he wanted to make the film right goodfellas is such an exhilarating film casino has that epic week he really wanted to de-glamorize the mob life and that's why he needed that ending to really kind of hammer that point home yeah, you know what? You're right. I'm in. Best picture. <laughs> Deirdre You're Fett right. is the you best. Told me. <laughs> right, one more before I let you go. How belligerent was Jamie Horowitz to work with? I mean, as a co whenever I see co directors, I get fearful. How bellicose was he in the editing room? Um, he was fantastic, honestly. He's he he brings like humor and intelligence and was just like he was a whole lot of fun and um I actually think it's great to have two people there. Uh we we you know, he has a more of a live background and was very aware of like keeping things moving along and um he was great to work with. I, I'm I couldn't like honestly couldn't be happier to be here at the zone and I'm really excited for what's coming up. A corporate answer, but I can tell a genuine and sincere answer as well. And you're right. And he is obviously a great guy. Uh, check out yeah, One Night from Deirdre Fenton and Jamie Horowitz. Uh, it's going to be a great fight this week. And I'm assuming you're not going to be in Riyadh, but I'm sure you'll be watching. And I really appreciate uh, you joining us here on Cinephile. Good stuff, Deirdre. Thanks so much. Mount Rushmore. All right, now it's time for the Mount Rushmore movies with imaginary friends. What a great idea this was from Joe. And as always, we love your ideas. My, I believe my buddy J.P. Morietta threw in a Mount Rushmore idea of movies with one word in the title. So maybe we can do that next week. I don't know what the jumping off point was, but uh, J.P. wanted to throw it out there. So I appreciate the ideas. As always, you can tweet us. Send a file pod for your ideas from the next Mount Rushmore. This one is from Joe, though, our fearless producer. A great idea inspired by Jojo Rabbit. So... This is a great list, man. What a fun idea. I'm going to go with Fight Club first. By the way, next week on Cinephile, I'm going to do a breakdown of the movies Fight Club, which is the 20th anniversary right now this year. If you'll recall, 
We talked uh, about that great book about 1999, the best movie year ever with the author previously on Cinephile. So I went back and watched Fight Club again. I saw it once, obviously, in 99 in theaters. I hadn't watched it since. I saw it for the first time in 20 years. So next week, Cinephile, we're breaking down the 20th anniversary of Fight Club and the 25th anniversary of Hudsucker Proxy, in addition to Adam Sandler's new film, Uncut Gems, which I saw in a theater with my man Ben Lyons and Max Bredos two weeks ago in Los Angeles. So I'm going to tell you that story. I met Adam Sandler as well. That's next week's Cinephile. All of which is to say, on this Mount Rushmore with an imaginary friend, Fight Club is there because Tyler Durden's not real. Take that. A beautiful mind. What a great guy. This one is. The friend is the FBI. That's right. Ed Harris doesn't exist. True romance. The friend is Elvis Presley. That's right. That's who Christian Slater's friend is. He's always talking to. And of course, the best movie ever, but a movie with an imaginary friend, Harvey. That's right. Jimmy Stewart with an imaginary rabbit. What a bizarre idea. I remember seeing that in a movie. I'm like, what, what the hell is this? Oh, hello, Harvey. There he is. A giant rabbit. You can't beat Harvey. That's my Mount Rushmore movies with imaginary friends. Fight Club, A Beautiful Mind, True Romance, and Harvey. Here's hoping Joe gets in The Machinist or The Shining. All right, I'm throwing in The Shining, definitely. Tony and Lloyd have to include that. I'll just get this out of the way. Fight Club is in it. Tyler Durden's not real. Sorry, people. 20 years too late. Uh, True Romance, that's my honorable mention, but I'm going to go with Donnie Darko. I haven't seen True Romance <laughs> In uh, a really long time, I've seen Donnie Darko more recently, and Frank... Jake Gyllenhaal, Jake yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal, yeah. Drew Barrymore, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's in it, too. So that one's in it, and then my number one is Drop Dead Fred, 1991, about an imaginary friend named Drop Dead Fred, but more importantly, I'm including it because it was filmed in my hometown. We never get that, so you could literally film a plastic bag being stepped on for two hours, and I'll put that on my Mount Rushmore, as long as it's in my hometown. But apparently, that's what Joker is, just a guy getting stepped on for two hours, so <laughs> that's it, yeah. Which, which is why I'm very offended when I let check the latest Gold Derby that Joaquin Phoenix is in, is in lead right now to win for Best Actor. I'm like, oh my God, just a guy getting kicked in the balls. That's going to win you an Oscar. It's a sick, sick world. Now it's time for a new segment. Recall. All right, Total Recall, new segment, great idea from Joe. He had pitched this a while back, and then Shea Serrano did it in his excellent book. So as I told Shay when he was previously on Cinephile, we're stealing that idea. He said, yeah, go for it. So I like this idea, especially building up to the Oscars, which are taking place February 9th, which is you go back to the Oscars and, and redo them and say, okay, how would we have this differently? So I'm not going to... I think what Shay did is he actually included other movies that weren't even nominated. So we're just going to have the criteria of movies that were nominated and say what should have won. So best picture, I'll get that out of the way. This was, of course, the movies of 94 and the 95 Oscars. So Forrest Gump is a tragedy. It's ridiculous that one best picture. One of the worst best picture winners ever. I, I forgot Four Weddings and a Funeral. It's actually nominated for best picture, which is great to see because honestly, rom-coms underappreciated. And I did think that was really funny. They dropped F-bombs, the first 10 words of that movie. Hugh Grant at his most uh, floppiest and stammering. Shawshank Redemption, obviously, is a classic. I would love to get Quiz Show in there, which is a wonderful, wonderful movie from Robert Redford starring Ray Fiennes and John Turturro. I love that movie. But, of course, the answer is Pulp Fiction. Lawrence Bender, producer. Uh, completely influential movie. You can watch it a thousand times. I don't know how you have Pulp Fiction not winning Best Picture, Joe, for your Total Recall. Yeah, I have to agree. Shawshank Redemption, I think, would be number two. But you're right. Forrest Gump winning that year, everyone was just caught up on the gump train. You know what I mean? Sadly, I do. 
Director, again, a joke. Robert Zemeckis won for Forrest Gump. Should have won for Back to the Future, but instead he wins for Forrest Gump, whatever. Woody Allen, Bullets Over Broadway. I was surprised he was nominated for director. It's a really funny movie. Diane Weist is tremendous. She won Supporting Actress. No, don't speak. Don't speak. She's great in the movie. I'm glad she won. I would not give it to Woody Allen, though. Redford, again, Chris, I'd love to get him in there, but of course he won for Ordinary People, which was also a crime because he beat Scorsese for Raging Bull. Christoph Kieslowski, I'd love to get in there for Red. He's an unbelievable filmmaker. He did a, a series of movies called The Decalogue. It's based on the Ten Commandments. So literally the Decalogue, is a ten, it's one of the greatest movies I've ever seen in my life. It's a 10-hour movie. Each commandment is one hour. So, you know, Thou Shalt Not Lie is like a one-hour film. And, you know, Adultery is one hour. It's amazing. So honestly... Kieslowski should have won for the Decalogue, which is 1988. But I, I don't want to do that where you say, well, he should have won for that, so he's going to win for you. I, I do like Red. That was part of his Red, White, Blue trilogy. I thought White was the best of the three, but I'm not going to give it to Kieslowski. Again, the answer is Tarantino for Pulp Fiction. Never won for Best Director. He's won a couple times for Screenplay, but he should have won for Director for Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that. I know, it's crazy. One, one for the uh, Screenplay. He uh, won that along with his writing partner, Roger Avery. Best actor, Hanks or Forrest Gump. Again, tragedy. So it should have been either Morgan Freeman, Shawshank Redemption, Nigel Hawthorne, The Madness of King George, which I've never seen. Remember the trailer looked hysterical. Maybe he should have won. Paul Newman, Nobody's Fool. Newman should have won for The Verdict, which is insane. Uh, but I remember, I think uh, Jim Miller's a big Nobody's Fool fan. I would have gone for John Travolta, though, as Pulp Fiction. Comeback performances, Vincent Vega. Or I would have gone with Morgan Freeman. Honestly, I have no issue either one. Travolta or Freeman for me over Hanks. I kind of like Hanks here. Personally, I mean, I think he, the Forrest Gump doesn't happen without him, but I think you could do Shawshank Redemption without Morgan Freeman. That's interesting. I mean, Hank certainly was very good in the movie, even though the movie was bad. Uh, you're not going to go with Travolta for Pulp Fiction. As I, uh, we discussed earlier, Michael Madsen originally was going to be the role of Vincent Vega. Right. I mean, I, I would, but that movie too is, there's such a huge ensemble and such a big cast. Is John Travolta, the main protagonist in the movie, I think you could argue you a few other characters could be that as well. Best Actress is a tough one because I haven't seen many of these. Never Saw Blue Sky, Jessica Lange won for that movie. Loved her in Cape Fear. Jodie Foster and Nell, which I remember was just brutal. What a tough watch. Miranda Richards and Tom and Viv, never saw that. Winona Ryder, Little Women, never saw that. Susan Sarandon and The Client I did see. You know, what the hell? I'm going to go Susan Sarandon should have won for The Client as Regina Reggie Love, and I say that facetiously. She should have beat Jessica Lange, Best Actress. Joe? I will go with Jessica Lange for Blue Sky. I have not seen any of those movies, but if you're going Sarandon, <laughs> I'm going Jessica. All right, fair enough. Just trust me, avoid, avoid Nell at all costs. That's a tough one. I will. Best Supporting Actor. Uh, Gary Sinise for us. I did like him as Lieutenant Dan. Paul Schofield, wonderful in Quiz Show. I'm telling you, Mark Van Doren, awesome. Your name is my name. Chaz Palminteri is really funny. I'm glad he was nominated for an Oscar because the Bronx Tale is amazing. He's really good at playing a gangster Cheech in Bullets Over Broadway. I have no issue. I swear to God, people are getting angry with this. I have no issue with Martin Landau winning at Ed Wood because his Bella Lugosi is remarkable. A remarkable tragic figure. A drug addict who ends up having a wonderfully close relationship with Giant Depp's lead character. But I believe the answer should have been Samuel L. Jackson, Pulp Fiction, Jules Winfield. Incredible with all those performances and all those lines and the dialogue. Ezekiel 25-17. I don't have an issue with Landau winning. I Honestly, I was really happy when he won, but Sam Jackson feels like he should have won. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. Sam Jackson should, should have won that year. All right, supporting actress. Here's one that I actually am good with. Diane Weiss is hysterical on Bullets Over Broadway. Don't speak. Don't speak. Helen Sinclair. She's up against Rosemary Harris, Tom and Viv. Never saw it. Helen Mirren, Madison King George, never saw it. Uma Thurman, great in Pulp Fiction. And Jennifer Tilly, 
she was pretty good in Bullets Over Broadway as Olive Neal. But of the two of them, I'm going to take Diane Weist for supporting actress. I'm also going to lock in Diane Weist for Bullets Over Broadway. And which is interesting with Jennifer Tilly also being nominated that year, you think that it would split the vote. So it's yeah. her uh, performance must have been amazing. Yeah, good point. So last one here, original screenplay, Pulp Fiction actually won. It was written by Tarantino, story by him and Roger Avery. Bullets Over Broadway is a great one. Four Weddings and a Funeral, good script by Richard Curtis, who's a really talented uh, scriptwriter, British. Obviously, he's done other movies like Love Actually, that kind of stuff. Heavenly Creatures, I forgot, Peter Jackson was nominated, along with Francis Walsh and Red. Again, I love Krzysztof Kieślowski. He co-wrote it with Krzysztof Pieslowicz. So I wouldn't be offended if uh, Kieślowski had won, but honestly, Pulp Fiction is a no-brainer there. I'm going to assume you agree with me there, Joe. 100%. And the last one here, best adapted screenplay. Again, a farce that Eric Roth won for Forrest Gump. Never saw Madison King George, but Alan Bennett was nominated. Nobody's Fool was Robbie Benton, based on the novel by Richard Russo. Shawshank Redemption can make a really strong case. I have no issue with Shawshank Redemption. Won. Frank Darabont should have won an Oscar for the Shawshank Redemption. But my choice quiz show, yes, Paul Atanasio, great screenwriter, was a big part of Homicide Life on the Street, based on the book Remembering America, A Voice from the 60s. I would have loved this one, because if you redid it, Pulp Fiction in my world would have won picture and director and screenplay and lead and supporting. So, okay, that's, that's a juggernaut. If you have, or maybe if you had Freeman winning for lead actor, that would have given Shasha Redemption their big win. And then I could have had Quisho winning for adapted. That way I could spread the wealth, so to speak. But I have no issue with uh, if Darabont or Atanasio had won, I do have an issue with Eric Roth winning. I, I would put Shawshank as the winner here only because it, if it can't get any of the other categories, that movie is too good to be snubbed at the Oscars. So I got to give Shawshank Redemption some love. I love it. Total Recall. I love this idea, Joe. I love going back and seeing these movies, seeing the ones I remember, seeing the ones I missed. Maybe I should have watched along the way, but that's good stuff. Hopefully people like it as well. Let us know. You can tweet us in a file pod, tweet me individually, add me an S for it, and let us know what you think of Total Recall, our new segment here on Cinephile. I'm off to Saudi Arabia, special assignment for, here for DAZN. we got a big fight between Joshua and Ruiz, so hopefully I'll catch some movies on that 12-hour flight over there, but I can definitely assure you of this in the next Cinephile, Uncut Gems, a review of Adam Sandler's new film, which I watched two weeks ago, plus my interaction with Sandler and one of the directors, Benny Safdie, after the movie. Uh, and we'll also talk about the 20th anniversary of Fight Club and the 25th anniversary of the Coen Brothers film, The Hudsucker Proxy. Our special guest is going to be Chris Beecham from Gold Derby. Once again, our special thanks to Deirdre Fenton uh, for Check Out One Night, which is available on zone, also available on YouTube. And until then, I'll see you at the movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. 
Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.